Hi, I'm Seth Gummery, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Cynthia Warwick, president of Stillman College in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Dr. Cynthia Warwick became Stillman's seventh and first female president in 2017. Dr. Warwick is a problem solver and stabilizer in distressed environments. Dr. Warwick is a native of San Antonio, Texas and graduated from Howard University with a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy and completed the Master of Science in Public Policy from the Georgia Institute of Technology and her doctorate in Environmental Science and Public Policy from George Mason University. With over 20 years of service in higher education through the faculty ranks, administrative and executive positions, Dr. Warwick's focus is on connecting students and the college to opportunities that advance academic excellence, degree completion, and admissions into graduate and professional schools. With the goal that these opportunities lead to fruitful careers in science, technology, teaching, and the advancement of women in these fields. Dr. Warwick, thank you for joining us today. You've been a, a trailblazing leader for sort of the majority of your career at historically black colleges and universities. Can you tell us more about those experiences and, and what led you into higher education leadership? Yeah, well, let me start with what led me into higher education, because I have a different pathway than most college presidents. I'm a registered pharmacist, and I owned and operated my pharmacy in San Antonio, Texas, which is my hometown. And when one of my pharmacy technicians wanted to get the prerequisites for pharmacy school at the local community college, I learned that they didn't offer the physics and organic chemistry and biochem and the courses she would need to become admitted into a pharmacy program. And so it just so happened at that same time, there was a vacancy on the Alamo Community College District Board of Trustees. And in Texas, trustees are elected. And so I ran for the election, the seat on the board, and I won, you know, even after a runoff. And I was like, that was my first time in politics, but it was a district-wide election. And uh, I served on the board for three years of a six-year term. And I tell you why I left is because I learned in that experience as a community college trustee, the challenges of um, higher ed in terms of addressing the different preparation that students of color were bringing to the institutions. Um, we, We saw a huge demographic shift in the number of students of color attending community colleges and colleges in general in the 80s, we saw a significant increase, but those faculty and programs had not changed from the previous majority students that they had and not understanding the culture, the differences that they brought to the table, the challenges in their families, first-generation students, they just weren't prepared. And so I felt that after three years on the board, I could make a difference in higher ed leadership. So I went back to school and got a master's in public policy at Georgia Tech and a 
PhD in environmental science and policy. I really focused my research on environmental health disparities, looking at environmental exposures, and that's related to pharmacy and health in a way, toxicology, so to speak. And, um, and so I, I went back to school and decided I was going to be an HBCU uh, college president and lead and solve these problems. And, and uh, that's what I've been working on for the past 20 years. That's sort of an amazing story. I didn't, I didn't realize uh, uh, that, that the start was coming in and, and, and really trying to get more uh, programming for just someone trying to come in and, and get work in, in the local market. And I think it speaks to so many different things, the importance of, of education just across the board, but also the importance of, of our institutions on understanding what is happening in our local communities and what is the, what is the training that, that our students need. And then you spoke to also making sure that our institutions are representative of the students that we're serving. Um, and and how those demographics are changing. And that's obviously been true for a very long time and continues to be true today, especially as we look at all of the different um, issues around uh, our workforce and, uh, and the shifting needs and also the shifting demographics of what our quote unquote traditional students look like. You, you've said that, that you have the, the opportunity to put in place a vision that will move um, the college from survival mode to a transformation into an institution that is sustainable through the 21st century. What inspires you to, to work towards this goal day to day? And what is the most challenging aspect of this? And, and I think you can take some of, of some of that past history as well and, and how that really informs what you're doing, doing now. Yeah, so I think because my background as a pharmacist, I feel prescriptions. So I solved the problem. And so that's what I'm always looking at. Okay, how can I treat this patient? And if you think about the college as a patient and what are all of the ailments and what are the things that I can do to make this patient healthy and then healthier in the long run, you know, looking at prevention, looking at treatment, and looking at innovative ways to uh, change higher ed so that it, it moves with technology and the changes, the rapid changes we're seeing today. Uh, COVID-19 is, is showing us all of the change that we have to adopt. And this really helped me move my paradigm faster because, you know, we're all in a crisis mode trying to address how do we start the campus? How do we keep doing what we do in this environment? And, um, you know, I think that's, that's been a huge challenge this year uh, because it's, it's required everyone to shift to a virtual mode or a hybrid mode. I think the, the biggest challenge is faculty, getting them to be able to be effective in that uh, delivery system. So it's inspiring work because I think we're small and we're able to demonstrate uh, changes more quickly than a big major universities. So 
I, I can see, you know, like when you're a pharmacist and you, you give people medication that the doctor has ordered and you see the results almost immediately. That's what I, I like to do is be able to see the results of, of the treatment in a, on a very fast uh, time pace. So it's, it's exciting work. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, you know, one, I, I love that you are sort of prescribing treatments uh, for, uh, for the college and, and taking that prescriptive approach. A lot has changed and a lot had to change really quickly, obviously, with, with COVID-19. This is not something that we were all prepared for, obviously, you know, both nationally, internationally, as well as, you know, just uh, on our own campuses and in the small, you know, worlds and communities that we live in there. Um, in, in your opinion, sort of coming out of, of COVID-19, and this might have been true through COVID-19 or, or even made more true, what are, what are some of the most pressing challenges that you see um, HBCU leaders like yourself dealing with right now? Um, and I'd love to hear about some of the prescriptions that you have to, to deal with some of those challenges. Well, I think the pressing challenges for HBCU leaders and higher education leaders in general is regarding technology and like I mentioned before, ensuring that our faculty are effective using technology in their courses. You know, everybody's talking about this new normal and I think the new normal will have to embrace technology that we're not going back all the way back to how we did anywhere, any business today is not going back to the old models. And so we have to be more flexible and more innovative in terms of how we deliver education and think about ways that we connect to industry sooner than students graduate. I think it's important for them to get experiential knowledge because most faculty have never worked in industry. If you think about the the age of most faculty at all of our colleges and universities in the United States, their age is in the 50s range. So this technology revolution is very new. It's nothing they grew up with. And so how you get more faculty on board and how you train new faculty to innovate in education delivery is is going to be key. It's a great point. COVID-19 sort of forced us to innovate quickly, right? And which is something that as as colleges and universities and, and higher education institutions, we don't necessarily always don't have a history of doing as well, right? I think that uh, we've always taken a long time to to think about all of the implications for what we are doing and the changes that we're making. Obviously, the pandemic didn't didn't make that possible. How do you think that how do you think that we keep that innovation? You're talking about you're talking about in the you know faculty members needing to continue to innovate that that teaching and learning environment. How do we keep that desire to innovate? moving forward as we go back to a new normal? Can we, can we have innovation be part of what that new normal is and sort of innovation that's almost experimental, right? Where we're trying things that we don't know are going to succeed, but we're actively pushing them out there. 
Yeah, I I think we have to incentivize it. I think that um, certainly a lot of faculty in higher education are similar to teachers in the K through 12. They're not acknowledged and treasured as they should be. Um, so we've learned, and I think the, the whole U.S. public has learned how challenging it is to have your children at home, especially your young adults. <laughs> and, and, and so we, we need to appreciate those faculty more and, and provide them with the training, the technology, and the partnerships I think we can do a lot more if we can connect the the private sector companies who will be seeking these graduates to these faculty. There needs to be more opportunities to have them have discussions about what industry's expectations are of graduates in this new normal. Yeah, I, as a parent of four young people, I uh, and having spent my whole career in education, I still have a whole new uh, appreciation for all of our teachers and faculty members across the entire spectrum, uh, and uh, and did send a, a few notes to some of my, my friends and some of my uh, old professors to just say thank you and I'm sorry uh, uh, <laughs> after the fact. Um, I think on the the flip side of this, one thing that has happened during this time, and it's been happening over the last few years, but has sort of accelerated, is this discussion currently about higher education not being sort of worth it, quote unquote, whether that's the outcome or the amount that we're paying to get a degree. Um, in your opinion, how, how do we rebuild that faith? Well, I think it goes back to how the United States has lost competitiveness in higher education and research and all of those areas that made us number one for so many years. And I think we're struggling with that question. How do we make sure higher education is worth it? I definitely know that I would not be where I was without it. And um, and I think the people who are saying that you don't need a college education probably are not thinking about all of the factors that go into that. Um, I think young people today, as I see them, um, you know, as a baby boomer, of course, I see these younger generations differently than ours, and they are different. I think they have access to significantly more information than we have, you know, just at their fingertips. But how they interpret and filter and gather data to make them better, higher education really provides that foundation, those values that understanding of what are those key areas that everyone needs to learn. You know, you know, that's what we do in general studies. Every institution in this nation has a general studies core. And those things are what we've decided are important 
for uh, people to know. And, and you may not think that you use it at all, but once you graduate and you get into the real world, you find that you're using history, you're using ethics, you're using uh, world civilization, and those courses, art appreciation, music appreciation, those things that you think are not worth or don't contribute to you in a business sense, but they really do. They really do. They uh, make you a better person. They make you appreciate diversity of different disciplines and how people have different talents and treasures. They help you understand where you fit in the world. And I think that, you know, higher education, those, those first two years are so important laying that groundwork and help you understand who you are. And then if in fact you have chosen the right area to study for your major, and then you can always change your mind after you get some of that information that you haven't had before. So I, I think it's critical that we, you know, continue to educate students on a general education core that includes the humanities and the arts, because that just makes us a well-rounded citizen. I think something you said at the beginning really stuck out to me is, right, like our emerging adults, as, as someone else has referred to, to young people going into college, right, are, are now inundated with so much more information than, than we had, right? For my generation, I just had the college book and I flipped through that page by page and, and read the short descriptions and then tried to match myself to those short descriptions, right? And there's so much information now out there. I'm curious, you know, over the last year and, and in your time at Stillman, right? This last year has been very different. How do you see now talking with students about all of that information and those prospective students? How do they, how do they, how do they sort of, pull that out um, to understand that. I think that's the hardest point, right? There's so much available to them online, on podcasts, on social media, and that is giving opinions of all different kinds. It's almost data overload, uh, right? And how do I, how do I start to filter through that? Because I haven't yet gotten to Stillman to understand all of those wonderful things that help me think through all of these different data pieces and, and form my opinion. So I guess to, to come back over the past year, and really in your time since you've joined Stillman, how are you communicating to that students? And really specifically in the last year, do you, do you feel like anything has, has changed um, specifically? I think this uh, pandemic has provided us with more opportunity to communicate with students. I think that we have to reinforce that students need to access all of the communication uh, vehicles that we provide, especially email. That's my biggest frustration is students don't read email. So they would gather more information about things that they could benefit from. And I've shared that with them on numerous occasions. It is the business of the college. It is the bit, it is the language of business. And so um, I think I hope they they are, you know, more and more 
have found this time where they will start accessing information that we provide. Uh, in terms of um, learning, we, we established a public health task force and um, they were led by a PhD epidemiologist and anesthesiologist and other health care professionals and public health professionals on our campus. And they made recommendations to the administration on testing and now vaccinations and everything, you know, quarantine, you know, based on the information provided by the CDC and understanding our population and our environment. I think you can't just take those those recommendations for face value because everyone is in a different context and certainly having a population that is predominantly African-American, predominantly pale eligible. So come first generation students coming from families who have probably been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. So we had to take all of that into consideration and really think about how do we protect them and make sure that our campus is safe. And I think those folks did a great job. I, you know, we had eight cases in the fall, positive cases and five in the spring. I think uh, the five in the spring could have been prevented if, if uh, the government all over weren't were saying, you know, you can stop wearing a mask. And we never changed our policy, but yet that influence from the outside, you know, creeps in. And so students went bowling and students went to Chi Chi's buffet. And of course, you know, <laughs> they weren't thinking. I think they learned why they got infected. And so I think everybody's learning. And we're still learning, even with this Delta variant. So uh, I think we've done a great job in keeping our campus safe. And we're looking forward to seeing how we continue to do that, given, you know, I think everyone was hoping this was over, but it's not. And, and so uh, we just have to address it. And then we need to realize you know, as a healthcare professional, that this isn't the last time we're going to see something like this. And so if we start understanding that we have to live with these types of challenges, it may be something else. I was on faculty at Florida A&M when we had the MRSA outbreaks everywhere. And so all, you know, this isn't new. This is just, um, something that's really caused more deaths, more mortality than any other healthcare event in this modern, you know, world. So uh, we're just going to have to start learning how to live with uh, climate change and all of the things that it brings. I think that's really important, right, is, is that this is, this is now going to be something that now that we have learned how to deal with this, we have to understand that this is not going to be the last time that we deal with this and you bring up climate change and you bring up other uh, things that we need to start thinking about more long-term as things that we potentially have to have to start to plan for and, and think about as 
as as institutions. To that, you, you've mentioned the move, right, sort uh, for for academics and and teaching online. The fact that we're probably never going back to what we were before, which was this primary in the classroom all the time, right? Like even though that is a very important part of the of the traditional campus education, right? That that's going to shift and change. Um, what other sort of longstanding changes do you think we will see as we as we move forward into this year and beyond? Um, and and what sort of changes are are you having at, at Stillman? What what sort of things are you trying to to move and shift as we look towards uh, the effects of, of of other you know outside pieces? Well, I think the pandemic really forced us to move to our Stillman Online program faster. Uh, we got approval from our creditor SAC CLC in 2019 to offer fully online degrees. And uh, we were poised to initiate that in the fall of 2020. The pandemic uh, forced us to move much sooner to that. And, and I, I'm kind of grateful because if it, you know, knowing how higher ed moves, it, you know, we needed a pandemic to get, <laughs> get things, you know, moving in that direction. Uh, when you look at traditional liberal arts colleges like Stillman. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, that's where we will see the growth in the future. I'm right down the street from the University of Alabama. Um, the vast majority of their students are out of state. You know, there was a big real estate apartment boom here. So they've overbuilt apartments for student residences. And, and that's benefited us because we, we work on a, on a master lease to to help our students afford uh, living in an apartment. And so those lease payments have gone down and that's been, that benefits us. And it also benefits our students to keep the cost of, of their education down. Uh, so I see, and what I think in the future is that we're, we're gonna see students spending less time on campus. I think we'll start seeing students maybe you know, traditional students spending two years on campus studying, like we were talking about the core, general studies core, and getting that liberal arts and getting that understanding of what higher ed is and who they are, getting, you know, getting away from home, growing up, using those two years to discover really what am I good at, what do I want to do in, you know, and I, I tell folks, tell these students, you know, y'all are going to be working for 50 years. So you need to figure out what makes you happy. So I think that we'll see them on campuses for probably two years and then the rest, they'll finish their degrees online. I think I'll see a lot of that. A lot of students will be uh, looking at the affordability and trying to meet those those you know, reduce their debt, get their degree, and also get that experience while they're in school. I think that's important uh, because, uh, you know, that's what I, I come from a professional background. 
And that's what we do in pharmacy school. You learn all the foundation, you learn how this is, and then you spend a year working in, you know, in your area. You rotate through all of the different types of pharmacy uh, research and clinical hospital, you know, nuclear, you know, all of that. And you spend a whole year doing that and being in different environments to see what part of pharmacy do I want to do because there's lots of facets and so I I think more and more students in the future will be doing that what part of you know this undergraduate education will I do and it's still been we've also start thinking for them we're like okay let's uh, develop some master's programs, you know, joint master's with, you know, our neighbors. So we have like three plus one or three plus two programs in engineering, in communications, in biology, you know, trying to help you move and get, you know, get on track sooner using, you know, your last year in as a first year of a master's program. So I think, you know, we have to be, we're we're expecting to be more creative, using technology more and uh, seeing fewer students on campus, not only because of the costs, but because there are going to be fewer traditional students. Um, The United States doesn't have as many high school students as they did when I was in high school. And so, you know, we see those numbers dwindling. And uh, if we don't get immigration right, we're, we're, we're gonna, they're going to continue to decrease. So, um, you know, higher ed is going to have to pivot again to, to a different structure to, to support, you know, those students. The largest population of students are not your traditional high school graduates. They're people who are in the workforce who don't have a degree and recognize that they need one in order to advance in, in their life. Yes, we need to come up with an a, either, we need to redefine um, the traditional student or we can leave the traditional student, but we need the, the word that encapsulates what our student actually, our student body actually looks like at this point. Yeah. I've heard people say, right? Like the post-traditional, the, there's a lot of different, but it is, yeah. it is the dynamics are definitely changing. Um, you mentioned one thing which was which was great and it's it's very hard I think for a younger person to understand which is that you know you are you are going to come out and you are going to work for a long time right and you are going to work to realize your dreams uh, for a long time that this is a long career uh, not just what you do immediately when you graduate and as students you know work to realize those dreams it's it's just it's hard to understand that this is a long term uh, goal. Um, this this podcast is is about trying to is about rebuilding the American dream, um, but I think an important question as we're doing that is is what does the American dream mean to you, uh, Dr. Warwick? I've traveled a lot, you know, to different continents and countries, and and I see how the desire and understanding of education is so important to. Uh, this dream, you know, to succeeding in life. Uh, You know, the American dream to me is about building wealth, is about making sure that my children and grandchildren have the resources they need to do better than me. 
And, and that's what I, I always thought the American dream was, is just ensuring that, you know, like my parents and my grandparents wanted to make sure that I, I, ex, I exceeded what they were able to accomplish. And education gives you that. I think uh, America, America provides that. We provide various programs for people that serve our country like, you know, the military and the public health corps and others, expanding that to a larger population, I think will help get more people to rebuild in the American dream, getting what getting wealth as opposed to income, you know, being property owners and being proud of your accomplishments and being able to support your children and grandchildren. That's what, what I think it is. What advice do you, do you give for young people contemplating college or, or their futures more generally? Um, yeah. I, I think it's not just college, right? As we know, it's not a four-year degree is not perfect for everybody. So how, how do you advise someone who's 17, 18 years old and, and looking at all of these choices and all of the information that's out there? I think everyone needs mentors and I think they should visit and speak to people who are, have done well and ask them how they got there. You know, everybody has a story. It, you know, I just didn't happen overnight. I've had challenges and, uh, you know, 50 years ago when I graduated from high school, I had no idea I would be a cop a college president. It wasn't even on my radar. So I think that um, students need to look for role models, look for mentors, speak with them, and develop a plan. And just recognize that you can always change the plan. You can change your mind. You can do something else like me. You know, I was 17 when I decided to be a pharmacist. And I think that uh, 15 years later, I said, oh, I can do more things. And I did. It takes sacrifice and certainly planning, but um, that's what you need to have people who will support you and, and, and tell you the truth. Find people who will tell you the truth. So a lot of people come up with these far reaching ideas of success that are going to take a short period of time. And we all know, you know, I know it takes time and you've got to put the work in. There are no shortcuts to wealth and success in the United States or anywhere, you know? So I think that's, that's what I would do. Tell young people, find good mentors, find good advisors, and, and develop a realistic plan to get you where you want to go. President Warwick, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. You've been listening to me, Seth Gumry of Degree Insurance, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. Find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us on Twitter at Degree Insurance. Until next time. Well, wasn't that amazing? 
It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Thank you.